we're going to continue our series called Jesus for Everyone. We're going to be in Luke chapter 10. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version, from the ESV, and I'm starting at verse 17. A little bit of a context for you. Um, right before this, in Luke chapter 10, Jesus has just sent out 72 disciples. Some of your translations may say 70. Um, I won't go into all the detail as why some translations say 72, some say 70. There are some original manuscript kind of issues that are going on there, the Septuagint, Hebrew translations versus Greek translations. Uh, you can dive into that this week if you would like. Um, just know that the translation I'm reading says 72. Um, Jesus has just sent out 72 disciples, and they come back rejoicing because of the ministry that they've seen taking place, because of the ways that they have been able to participate in the kingdom mission of Jesus. As they come back, we're picking it up at verse 17, and we're actually going to read through the end of the chapter. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions and all, all, over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father. Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And behold, the lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, the religious uh, expert, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed him, leaving him for half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. 
Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which shall not be taken away from her. Let's, for a moment, in our own minds, recall the most joy-filled moments of our lives. Like, think for a second, pause, ponder, a moment in your life that just brought absolute, exuberant, overflowing joy. Something that just, just, just stirs happiness, joy, excitement, delight within you. One of the, or the last video uh, that I have of my younger brother is uh, his girlfriend filmed him right when the Dodgers won the World Series. Filled with excitement. Pacing around the house. Just like, I, I couldn't play the video for you because of the words that are in the video. So much joy. And then at one point in the video, he begins to cry. <laughs> Just tears of absolute excitement. And you hear his girlfriend in the video going, are you crying? <laughs> and she says, they won! They won. Moments in our lives overflowing with joy. I have the privilege of officiating weddings. And I know that you could picture this, probably this, these own scenes in your own mind right now, that that moment when the bride begins to walk down the aisle and us, as we're there in attendance, look at her face, but then we also look back and look at the face of the groom. And just the look of joy. It's like nothing else matters in that moment the delight that's on their faces. Jesus sends the 72 out. They come back. It says they come back rejoicing. They come back thrilled because of what has taken place. And Jesus says to them, don't rejoice. Get the exact words. Don't, don't rejoice because of, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions, that the, the spirits are, are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And this moment right now causes an overwhelming joy in Jesus. There is no other description in all of the gospel accounts of Jesus being described this way. 
No other place in the gospel accounts do we get this description of Jesus. It says, in that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. Jesus is absolutely giddy. He's overflowing with delight. Listen, I'll bring, you'll see the words up on, on, on there. This is from the New Living Translation. He was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he said, Oh, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, thank you for hiding these things from those who think themselves wise and clever and revealing them to this way. Yes, Father, it pleased you to do it this way. This passage is jam-packed with joy. The disciples come back, the 72 go back, they come back rejoicing. Jesus tells them, rejoice that your names are written in heaven, and then the description like no other of him overflowing with joy is written, and then he lets us know, he gives us insight that the Father is pleased that this is taking place. It's, it's, a, it's a passage just filled with excitement. Everyone is ecstatic. It's like Saturday mornings in our house when I walk through the front door with a pink box and the boys run around screaming, donuts! <laughs> there is so much excitement. Have you ever sat with someone who has such a contagious laugh? Maybe something not even funny takes place, but they begin to laugh. <laughs> They're just overwhelmed <laughs> with laughter, and it just spreads like wildfire through the room. Like, that's the kind of moment that we're, we're seeing here, is that Jesus is filled with delight. Why is he filled with such delight? Well, he goes a little bit further. You'll see that the next here verse in verse 24, he says, he turns to the disciples and he says, I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Jesus tells us why he is bursting out with absolute laughter and joy and happiness. It's because of this, the childlike the seemingly insignificant, the ones that are the lowly and looked down upon, they are the ones that are understanding and embracing the news of God's kingdom. Jesus is filled with giddiness at unexpected disciples. People that you would not have guessed that are following him, are following him, and it floods him with happiness. That's the whole idea here. It isn't the wise, it isn't the learned, it isn't the clever, it isn't the elite, it isn't the kings, it isn't the prophets, it isn't the religious leaders, it isn't the Levites, it isn't the priests. It's this crew of 72. Jesus is flooded. It's you. It's you. It's you. Listen to the words of N.T. Wright. 
Jesus celebrates what he realizes as God's strange purpose. If you needed to have privilege, learning, and intelligence in order to enter the kingdom of God, it would simply be another elite organization run, it, run for the benefit of the top people. At every stage, the gospel overturns this idea. Jesus sees that the intimate knowledge which he has of the Father is not shared by Israel's rulers, leaders, and self-appointed teachers, but he can and does share it with his followers, the diverse and motley group he has chosen as his associates. Jesus is coach over the bad news bears, and it can't, he cannot be happier about it. This, this is the group. This is the crew. These are the ones whose names are written in heaven. And the lesson in Luke 10 is that the kingdom of God is going to be filled with unexpected disciples. And Jesus literally cannot be happier about it. And I think appropriate to stop and to tell you, Jesus is thrilled that you are here. I don't know, maybe you've had relationships in your life. Think about relationship with, the, with a boss or a coworker or even a friend or, or a neighbor or, or a family member, and you're just not quite sure how they feel about you. Jesus just absolutely opens the door for us to see how he feels about us. He is flooded with joy that you're one of his disciples. He is absolutely giddy that you're one of his followers. The amount of joy that exists within Jesus' heart for you It's absolutely overwhelming to think about. It. I mean, there's just like a description like no other in all of the gospel accounts because unexpected disciples. He looks at us, the ragtag group of disciples, and he beams with elation. It's you. Your name is written in heaven. And by the way, I think that this description of Jesus' joy teaches us to be people that are thrilled when all matter of people walk through these doors. We look at, at Jesus' joy over the lowly and look down upon, and, and it is meant to be a formative moment for us that we are also to be a people that rejoice and celebrate over those whom Jesus has called to himself. So that we are to be a community that rejoice and celebrate and delight over who God is forming here within our own community. Luke 10 opens up with 72 disciples sent out to participate in the kingdom mission of Jesus. This is a crew of people that are sent out to do what Jesus is doing. Unexpected people are part of this group. 
It isn't some social elite group. It's a ragtag group, and they're full-on participants in the kingdom mission of God. They are described as people that are teaching. They are described as people that are healing. They are described as people that are delivering others. Jesus is thrilled about it. And so the next two stories are a continuation of this thought. Luke then shows us two stories that describe for us two unexpected apprentices of Jesus. Do you want to know what kind of people are disciples of Jesus? Do you want to know what kind of people are sitting at his feet and learning under his teaching? Do you want to know what kind of people are going to be the leaders and hold significance within the church? It's these two kinds of people. It's a Samaritan and it's a woman. The story of the Good Samaritan is of a looked-down-upon person living out kingdom values. A Samaritan is the example of someone living out the two greatest commands given by God to the people of Israel. A Samaritan is living and acting like Jesus. The story of the sisters is to show an unexpected person is sitting at the feet of Jesus. A woman is sitting as a student at the feet of a rabbi. She's being framed as an apprentice of Jesus, someone who will eventually do what Jesus is doing. Unexpected disciples. bring Jesus so much great joy and delight. We won't spend too much time on the first story, the story of the Good Samaritan, but I'd love to zero in on the words at the end of the story. The word to the scribe, or the religious lawyer, the religious expert, is to go and do like the Samaritan is doing. A Samaritan is intentionally used by Jesus as an example of someone that is embracing and participating in the kingdom mission of God. What, what is Luke doing here? Do you remember earlier the verse that, that was up on the screen? Jesus is rejoicing because it isn't the wise, the clever, and the learned. It isn't the kings and the prophets that are understanding these things. It's the childlike. It's the humble. And so, so what Luke is doing is saying, let me give you an example of that, right? The story starts, and I'm reading from the, from the New Living Translations. It says, one day an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus. I mean, that is just a flat-out example of the clever and the wise and the learned, right? A, an expert in the religious law stood up to test Jesus. But the story ends with Jesus telling that expert, that learned and clever one, now you go and act like this Samaritan. You, the expert in religious law, are to go out and live like the Samaritan in this story. Listen now. Unexpected disciples, unexpected people are full-on participants in the gospel. 
And what Jesus is doing here in this story is he's opening an understanding for the church that unlikely people can actually be examples of what it means to be his disciples. These are the kinds of people who are actually going out and loving the Lord with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving their neighbor as themselves. What kinds of people? Samaritans. And this should be a point of absolute joy and delight for us. If unexpected people are living like disciples of Jesus, then we also can be disciples of Jesus. It is a story meant to empower and to encourage and cause rejoicing and celebration within our own hearts. If a Samaritan can do it, <laughs> we can do it. You, you, you can be a full-on participant in the kingdom mission of God. You can also go out and do likewise. You also can love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. You can too. Let's go to that next story. But before we do, let me tell you a little story about Larissa and myself. When we were in Bible college, we weren't yet married at the time. We weren't dating at the time. She was just someone I had a crush on. <laughs> but we were taking a theology class together. And it was structured that at the end of the semester, there would be hosted debates. And these hosted debates would be on the different theological issues that we were wrestling with throughout that class. Well, one of the theological issues that we were wrestling was, with was the theology of women as leaders in the church. And so I thought it would be fun to sign up for the negative side of it, or the no. Like, no, women cannot have a, whole, a place of leadership within the church. A, a friend of mine, a quad mate of mine, had also signed up for that. Um, so we got paired up together, and we would be the ones that would be presenting um, the no, they cannot side of the debate. Larissa and one of her friends signed up for yes, they can hold the place of leadership within the community of believers. Well, listen, this debate got heated. <laughs> and at one point, my debate partner, not me. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, Larissa's debate partner got up and she wrote a Greek word out. And I think it was from, from the book of um, either, I think it was from Timothy. She writes out this word and she forgot one of the accent marks on the word. And the professor got up and he put the accent mark up on the word. And then when my debate partner got up, he said, well, obviously, they can't be leaders in the church. They can't even spell correctly. Like it was, it was devastating. Like it was like, like that cringeworthy kind of moment. Later on, we were told by the professor that he's like, right when he got up and started to do it, he's like, what am I doing here in this moment? 
Larissa and her uh, debate partner left the class. I found out, found this out later on, turning to one another and said about my debate partner, John, and me, those guys are never gonna end up married. <laughs> Can I tell you that when Larissa and I were dating, we got an invitation to go to the wedding of our debate partners. <laughs> who ended up marrying one another, and the officiant, officiant of their wedding was our theology professor. <laughs> it does show that men maybe can learn. Listen now, I, I tell this story for, for a handful of reasons. The topic of women and their role of leadership in the church has caused a lot of hurt. Just navigating this topic has caused a lot of hurt. And yes, the topic remains a place of debate within the church at large. It isn't just an easy conversation that I'm just going to waltz into. Like, there isn't a lot of weight and experience and baggage and hurts and conflicting views on. But I do want to get into it because here's, here's, here's the thing. Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus is of great significance. This is an extremely unexpected place for, for any woman to be. And to help you understand that, let me, let me read to you something else that Luke writes, and it's in the book of Acts. He's quoting the Apostle Paul. This is what the Apostle Paul says. He says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as you, all of you are this day. Luke uses the same description of Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus as he does when he quotes the Apostle Paul talking about being the student of a rabbi sitting at the feet of Gamaliel. To, to be described as sitting at the feet of a teacher, of a rabbi, is to in, in, invoke an understanding that this person is a full-on student of this rabbi. That, that, let, me, let me read to you again from N.T. Wright. Here's the way that, that he describes it. To sit at someone's feet meant, quite simply, to be their student. And to sit at the feet of a rabbi was what you did if you wanted to be a rabbi yourself. There is no thought here of learning for learning's sake. Mary has, quite, has quietly taken her place as a would-be teacher and preacher of the kingdom of God. This is a paradigm making moment for the church. 
Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus. This is a statement by Luke that unexpected people will be full-on participants in the kingdom mission of God. Unexpected people will be apprentices of Jesus. And it is a statement for all of us to know. There is room for you at the feet of Jesus. There's room for you here. Jesus saying that her sitting at his feet is the good and right thing for her. This is where she should be. Again, it's a monumental moment in the life of the church. It is an invitation for all followers of Jesus. You can be a student of Rabbi Jesus. And invoked in that understanding is, is that there is space for you to do the things that Jesus is doing. The teaching, the preaching, the healing, the Well, church, we are continuing our, um, our time in our series called Jesus for Everyone, in which we are uh, doing a, a pretty big overview of uh, themes that are happening in the books of Luke and Acts, both of those books written by a man named Luke. Um, he's one of the, the followers of Jesus and wrote an account to us so that we might be made assured of the things that we hear about Jesus uh, one of the things that we've mentioned quite a bit in, in the series is that uh, Luke tells us theology through story. He, he teaches us what it means to be followers of Christ, and he does so by weaving stories together. He crafts them together. Like we're in the, the study in the book of Luke and Acts, but I want to start this morning from a word that I've already uh, quoted, and it comes from the opening of the book of John. The Word gave life to everything that was created, and His life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. I start here because I believe what John writes so beautifully captures what Luke is going to tell us, but through stories. Now let's go into Luke chapter 4. I'm looking at verses 31 through 44. So that is, then Jesus went to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and taught there in the synagogue every Sabbath day. There, too, the people were amazed at his teaching, for he spoke with authority. Once, when he was in the synagogue, a man possessed by a demon, an evil spirit, cried out, shouting, Go away! Why are you interfering with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Why have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus reprimanded him. Be quiet, come out of the man, he ordered. At that, the demon threw the man to the floor as the crowd watched. Then it came out of him without hurting him further. Amazed, the people exclaimed, what authority and power this man's words possess. Even evil spirits obey him, and they flee at his command. The news about Jesus spread through every village in the entire region. After leaving the synagogue that day, Jesus went to Simon's home, where he found Simon's mother-in-law, very sick with a high fever. Please heal her, everyone begged. Standing at her bedside, he rebuked that fever, and it left her. And she got up at once and prepared a meal for them. 
As the sun went down that evening, people throughout the village brought sick family members to Jesus. No matter what their diseases were, the touch of his hand healed everyone. Many were possessed by demons, and the demons came out at his command, you are the Son of God. But because they knew he was the Messiah, he rebuked them and refused to let them speak. Father, thank you for your, your word. Thank you for this time that we get to explore your word written to us. Lord, the hope of the morning is that we might know you more. Through the stories that Luke writes, the community of believers, would we have assurance that you are overcoming the darkness? So we pray that in your name. Amen. I want to take you contextually um, to what's happening here. You'll see a slide come up that says Luke chapter 4 on the top of it. And here's what's happening in the overview of, of this entire chapter. It starts off with Jesus in the wilderness, a very common, uh, well-known story of Jesus fasting for 40 days as in the, in the wilderness. And at the end of those 40 days, he's uh, tempted by Satan. The closing temptation is that the devil took him to Jerusalem to the highest point of the temple and said, if you were the Son of God, jump off. Right after this, Jesus heads back into Nazareth. We're told he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he's sitting in a synagogue, a local place of worship um, amongst the town that he grew up in. He stands up, opens up a scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and one of the lines within that scroll, he reads out loud, or he reads a section and one of the lines is here, is he sent me to proclaim that the captives will be released. Then he lets the crowds know that part of the captives that will be released are people that are their enemies. And at this point, they're furious with Jesus. And so they jump up, they mobbed him, forced him to the edge of the hill, which the town was built, and they attempted to push him over the cliff. And really, when you see these two stories paired together, you discover that Luke is intentionally showing us that at these cliff moments, that Jesus is facing opposition. He's facing opposition, and, and he's overcoming the darkness. And right after these two stories, then we're told that he heads into a, a neighboring village called Capernaum, and there he heals people. He, he sets people free, people that were possessed by demonic spirits, and people that were filled with sickness. And when we read all of these stories together as a unified story, we'll notice that Luke is weaving something here together for us to capture. There's ongoing work by Jesus of overcoming darkness. This is our hope. A light is shining in the darkness and the darkness cannot extinguish it. Jesus is coming to save. He's coming to set people free. He, he, he is coming to release the captives. And this is crucial to our understanding of what the gospel of the kingdom is about. The good news that Jesus is preaching is this. We are a people that are in need of a rescue. And he's the one that we've been longing for. He has come to set people free. When you look at the way that Luke writes, what you'll notice is that Luke opens with an announcement. It's the opening of 
of the, the announcement of who Jesus is. You'll go to the next slide and you'll see that the story all starts with this way. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today. Something that we often reflect on. Every single Christmas we reflect on these words. But this is how Luke, this is the opening bracket of Luke's story. In the closing bracket, the very last words of the Apostle Paul that close out the book of Acts are this. So I want you to know that this salvation from God has also been offered to the Gentiles, and they will accept it. And the closing bracket to Luke's narratives are this, salvation, a savior. See, the words of Bonnie Tyler are, are this, I need a hero. I need a hero, and I'm going to hold on to the end of the night. And this is the big story that Luke is telling us. We need a hero. We are a people that are in need of rescue. And the light is shining in the darkness. Luke frames the whole story in the language of salvation. A savior has come for all people. Let's go back to the Apostle John. This is what he says. He's quoting, the Apostle Paul quotes Jesus, and he says, the thief has come to only to steal, to kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. See, the devil is for oppression, for captivity, for subjugation. He's for strife and broken relationships, for ill health, for lies and deception. And Jesus is for setting people free. He is for healing and for wholeness. He is for us knowing a good and eternal life. Jesus has come to set the captive free. And Luke cannot emphasize it enough. Jesus has come to set you free. That you would live in wholeness, that you would live in abundance, and that he would deal with anything that keeps you from living in that freedom. I haven't watched the movie in years, and it's one of those movies that I'm somewhat scared of to go back and watch because I'm afraid that it will not stand up to the test of time. Do you guys know those kinds of movies that you think are absolutely incredible, and then you go back and watch it and think, what was I thinking? That wasn't good at all. But the movie that I'm thinking of is The Three Amigos. Still good? Still good. Good to know. But there are the characters portrayed by Steve Martin, Martin, Chase, and, uh, Martin Short, and Chevy Chase said it this way. Wherever there is injustice, you will find us. Wherever there is suffering, we'll be there. Wherever liberty is threatened, you will find... Come on, the three amigos. <laughs> You'll find the three amigos. And this is the language that Luke is writing to us with. That where there is injustice, where there is suffering, where liberty is threatened, that's where Jesus seeks to work. He is a savior for all people. 
And I, I think that sometimes what happens is when we hear the words, Jesus saves, it is good and right for us to hear that Jesus saves us from the power of sin and death. But I love what Justo Gonzalez is putting down in his commentary on reflecting on the book of Luke. He says that while we proclaim the message of salvation in the sense of eternal life, we also have to proclaim the same message in the sense of liberation from every power of evil. That the, Luke, that the story that Luke tells about salvation is that Jesus is overcoming every form of evil that exists in the world around us. Salvation, yes, is that God is saving us from the power of sin and death. But the ramifications of it in every space of our lives, in every corner of the world around us, Jesus seeks to save people from the foreign occupation of evil in this world. Jesus sets us free. And I believe that that's such, that's so part of the reason why Luke, for Luke, salvation, when he talks about salvation, he so often beautifully weaves healing together with salvation. You know, even though that when you look at the Greek for words like soteria or sozo, these words that, talk, that get translated saving or saved or salvation, they can also be viewed from the words healing. Because salvation is about setting captives free. That whatever might have an oppressive reign over our lives, we have a Savior. We have one that longs to set us free. Luke tells us of Jesus reading from the prophet Isaiah about setting captives free, then immediately after that, Luke follows it up by telling stories of a man freed from a de demonic spirit and Peter's mother-in-law being healed from an intense fever. He's saying this is the application of that point. The captives set free, let me tell you a story about that. It's about a possessed man freed from demonic oppression. And it's about a beloved mother-in-law freed from the fever that has been just wrecking her life. Deliverance and healing are a part of this saving act of setting captives free. Here's the point. And I came across this from a biblical commentary that said it this way. God is concerned with all aspects of human life and relationships. And so... Salvation may involve the putting right of any aspect that is not as it should be. Whatever is broken, wherever there is captivity, wherever injustice exists, Jesus desires to set people free. And I believe that the story that the gospel writers and the writers of Scripture are trying to get us to understand that all healing and all deliverance belongs to the name of Jesus. And so that's why later on in, in, in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, when, when Peter and John stand before a crowd and they say there is salvation under no other name than the name of Jesus, that would the actually, you can actually translate that, that there's healing under 
no other name but the name of Jesus. And what they're getting us to understand is that all healing, all healing belongs to Jesus. This is what he seeks to do in the world around us. He has come to set people free, to lead us into lives of health and to wholeness. I think about, I, I want to use the word literally every night. <laughs> we, we take Tiago, our youngest, to, to bed. We read together, we, we pray together, he goes to sleep. And then I go back out of the room, I hang out with Larissa, and then when it's time for us to, to go to bed for the night, I always make sure to swing back by Tiago's room. And the reason that I always do that is because literally every night he has fallen asleep in the most dangerous position. If we're friends on Instagram or Facebook, I'm just actually thinking about it right now, I'm going to post. I have saved countless pictures of Tiago sleeping in the most awkward and dangerous of places with massive stuffed animals over his head. Like he's like one leg is on the bed and he's on the floor. I mean, it's, he's fallen asleep completely underneath the bed. I just, you just walk into the room every single night. It is a night of discovering that Tiago is in this weird, messed up position. And you look at that and we think about it, man, if I were to fall asleep like that and wake up the next morning, I would be messed up. My neck would be tweaked, my back would be hurting, and so every single night, it's about repositioning Tiago. Every single night. It's about picking him up, setting him right, and tucking him in again. And I've just been reflecting on that this morning, that that the way that God moves in our lives. I think, it, and listen, when, when, we, when we reset Tiago, it's like there's laughter and there's joy and there's delight and there's love, right? It's like picking him up and it isn't like this, this anger or this frustration. It's like, how dare you fall asleep that way? But it's this place of just because of, of our sheer delight in him, we reposition him to make sure that he is tucked in well in the darkness. I just think about that and, and this idea that the way that Luke brackets his stories, all in the language of salvation, is that his constant move in our lives is to set our lives right, is to position us for health, and wholeness, is to position us for thriving and joy and comfort and delight, is to position us in a way that says, I think that this might be better for you. I think that this might lead to more freedom and liberation and joy. These two captives being set free are tied to Jesus's words right afterwards. He turns to the crowds and he says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God in other towns too, because that is why I was, I was sent. 
Jesus is getting us to understand. The understanding is this. There is a new reality that is being inaugurated into the world. The kingdom of God is at hand. I have, and he's telling us, I've got to go into all of the other towns to make sure that this same message comes across. Salvation has come because the kingdom of God is at hand. Something is breaking in on this world. It's the kingdom of God. And as it breaks in on this world, what you are going to notice is that people are going to be set free. Is that injustice and oppression and captivity are going to be dealt with. That is going to be a sign that the kingdom of God is at hand. Let us use the imagery of my beloved nature documentaries. And you'll also see this same thing happening when you read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. That when winter is breaking and spring is coming in, you will see that spring doesn't just happen in one swoop, just swish, I can't talk right now, one swift motion. But you will see pockets in the snow of winter, I mean of spring breaking through. You, you will see pockets in which the land is thawing out. And the imagery there is that this is the direction that all of the land is going into. And so as followers of Christ, when we see acts of healing or freedom happen in the world around us, even though it might not happen in our own pocket of land, we rejoice and we celebrate. Because in that moment, what we are reminded of is that the kingdom of God is at hand. And this is the direction that all things are going to go in. This is where everything is headed. There will be a day when winter is completely gone and it will be fully spring. And the tension of that is that sometimes even those spaces that have been thawed out, the next morning there will be frost over that same space of land again. But that is not to discourage us that somehow winter is somehow is turning the course and going to win out on this movement. We just know that there's ebbs and flows to spring breaking in. But it is a constant reminder to us, again, this is the direction that all things are going into. Freedom is breaking in. A life no longer under subjection, under subjugation. But this freedom, this move of Jesus to release people from captivity just doesn't stop at the breaking of chains. It isn't just merely about setting captives free, but it is about asking the question, what are they set free into? We might have missed something on our initial reading of this passage in Luke. I'll, we'll bring the slide up here, and you'll see how the, the story played out when we read it. It starts with Jesus went to Capernaum, and he taught there in the synagogue every Sabbath day. Once, when he was in the synagogue, a man possessed by a demon, an evil spirit, cried out. And he heals that man. After leaving the synagogue that day, Jesus went to Simon's home, where he found Simon's mother-in-law very sick with a high fever. 
For you fellow Bible nerds, you're probably sensing the tension that we might have initially missed when we first read through this story. And the tension at hand is that Luke is letting us know that it's the Sabbath. It's the Sabbath day when all this liberation and freedom is taking place. Well, here's how it goes even further than that, remembering that it's the Sabbath. If you go to the next slide. And she got up at once and prepared a meal for them. Luke is doing something really intentional here in the telling of this story by letting us know that Peter's mother-in-law prepared a meal immediately after she was delivered. And by the way, it's not just because Luke loves food. He does, by the way. And this is one of the reasons that he's my guy. Like you, read through, you read through Luke and Acts, and you will constantly find stories of food. Even so, the, the Bible commentators let us know that this is one actually of the themes of the book of Luke, is food. <laughs> he loves stories, and he loves food. And for that reason, I absolutely love Luke, because I can jive with those two things. But it isn't just about his love for food. What we recognized, and what we might be zooming in on, is that word prepared. On the Sabbath, she got up and she prepared a meal. That would be a very tense moment. Because on the Shabbat, on the Sabbath, you do not prepare food. What is Luke doing here? He's letting us know that a new kind of freedom has broken in in the world. And, and listen, it always seems to go back to creation when you read the Bible. Quite a few weeks ago, we, we reflected on the fact that when you read through the creation narrative is that what you find is that on a lot of the days that the sun sets and then there's a new day. But when you read about the, the Sabbath day, the day of rest, intentionally there, there is not a sunset. And what it lets us know is that for the rest of our living, it is meant to be done from that place of Sabbath. The, the, the initial design of God is that the Sabbath would be ongoing, that all of our doing, that all, everything that we do, everything that we perform would flow out of this positioning of rest. And what Luke does here is that he recaptures that for us. He sets, Jesus sets people free. And now they can live with a new kind of rule over their lives. And it's the rest of God. It's the shalom. It's the peace of God that reigns over them. And it's like a divine swap has taken place here in Peter's mother-in-law's life. That what Jesus does is in this act of salvation, not only does he save her, from that illness and that fever, but what he does is now he places within her his Sabbath rest. And it's from there she now lives. Now she embodies the Sabbath. Now she embodies rest. Now she embodies 
peace. She embodies deliverance. She embodies freedom. And this is the work of salvation that God longs to do in all of our lives. That not only would he be freeing us from something, but he would be instilling something into us. He seeks to set us free and now live in a new way. Every Sabbath, then, in our own lives, we get a taste and a reminder of what Jesus someday will fully bring here on earth, a day where all will be made whole. And Sabbath, again, is a reminder to us. It's all about a move of freedom and liberation. And when you study Sabbath in Scripture, what you see is there's Sabbath, once every seven days, you're meant to rest, to be still, and to know the goodness of God's presence with you. And this is how I long for you to live in every space of your life. And then every seven years, there's supposed to be, there's supposed to be a Sabbath year where you let the entire land be at rest, where you don't have to toil and work for your food, but God will miraculously provide for you. This is the direction that Sabbath is flowing in. And then right after that, what you notice is that after every seven sets of Sabbath years, at the end of that, at the end of the 49th year, then there is to be a year of jubilee, a year of freedom, where all slaves are set free in the land. And all land is restored back to the original owner. The direction and flow of Sabbath is salvation it's liberation and it's freedom and luke so beautifully captures that by having a woman set free on the sabbath and now work from that place of liberation luke tells a story of a man and a woman set free and now serving under a new strength he, he captures this by telling us a story the Apostle Paul says the same thing in a re really beautiful and dense paragraph. Let me read it to you. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It, has, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We are set free and now can finally walk in the good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. 
as I invite Nathan to come back on stage, here's the last place that I want to take us. Verse 40 will come up on the screen. It says, as the sun went down that evening, people throughout the village brought sick family members to Jesus. No matter what their diseases were, the, touches, the touch of his hand healed everyone. What we might have missed on, on the first go around on looking at this passage is the highlight of the fact that the sun went down and then people brought their family members to Jesus. And the reason that Luke captures that for us is because the crowd had a sense of hope in Jesus, but they weren't fully there yet. How do I get to that conclusion? They waited for the Sabbath to end before they brought their loved ones to Jesus. You know, the, the way the Jewish community celebrates the Shabbat, the Sabbath, is that sundown on Friday, the Sabbath begins. And it's sundown on Friday, yeah, the Sabbath exists, begins, and then sundown on Saturday, that's the official end of the Sabbath. So what the crowd does here is there, there's hope in Jesus, but they're hesitant. They're hesitant. They're figuring him out. They're not entirely sure here in this moment. It's like they, they don't rebuke him. They don't confront him and say, like, how dare you heal on the Sabbath? But that's obviously a place of tension in their lives. But notice the movement of Jesus anyways. He heals them. Here is a people that don't have Jesus yet figured out. They're a little bit on, on, on the edge, on the precipice of accepting him and seeing him as Savior, Messiah, Deliverer. And he doesn't rebuke them for it. And I hope that what you see in that is patient and gentle Jesus. I hope what you see in that was at another point in Scripture we're told, he will not crush the weakest reed or put out a flickering candle. And so whatever might be kindling there in the hearts of the people, Jesus isn't going to squash it. He's going to nurture it. He's going to help them accept it. Because I think that sometimes in our mind that we might have an idea of Jesus saying like, well, why didn't you come earlier? You, you could have came right at the moment that you saw me deliver Peter's mother-in-law. But you intentionally waited. You're, you're, you're trying to live in two worlds. You're trying to hold on to the old. You're trying not to upset the status quo of the society around you. But you're also trying to get deliverance and healing. And he doesn't, he doesn't rebuke them for that. He heals them anyways. And, and I, I would hope that you just find that Jesus is, is wooing and, and, and calling you where you're at. 
to a place of freedom. And so whatever our doubts are, whatever our struggles are, whatever the things are that we're not entirely sure we want to let go of or deal with, we can bring our hesitations to Jesus. We can bring our hurts and pains and offenses to him. And say, help me to sort this out. Would I see your move of healing anyways in my life? I would hope for us this morning is that we would just have a time. We've spent so much time talking about Jesus as Savior, as Healer, as Deliverer, as Messiah. That we actually just sit and, and seek out Jesus in this moment, that whatever avail us, whatever has capped captivity over our hearts whatever it is that is a place of pain and frustration and disappointment that we would come before him and ask that he might heal and I'll let, us, let you know that sometimes it is like the response that he gives to the apostle Paul where he, he lets that thorn in the flesh stay in there but he also lets us know my grace is sufficient for you and in that statement, what he is saying is, is that, that my grace is more powerful than that point of oppression that is staying in your lives. The more powerful force in your life will be my grace. Let's just sit for a moment. Maybe with, with hands open that you might come before Jesus and be able to bring before him whatever point of captivity might exist in your life right now. Also recognizing that Luke highlights for us that it was family members that were brought forward. People brought their family members to Jesus. And I think that relationally, or whatever we might be connected with, so it might not be within our own lives, but something that we see in the lives of others around us or in the world around us, that we can bring those things before Jesus as well. Jesus, continue the work of setting your people free. Continue the move of releasing the captives. You who are the way, the truth, and the life, pray that you might lead us according to who you are. We would know your ways. We would know your character. We would know your nature. We would know your goodness, your kindness, your strength, your empowering, your gentleness with us. We would know your truth. That so often, Lord, we live by lies and deception, narratives that run in our minds. There are things that we have believed about ourselves that aren't how you see us. 
recognize the brokenness that might exist in relationships in our lives or places that we just need to see truth prevail. Might need to see you speak a word over those areas of our life. And you are the life. You are good. You are for thriving. You are for abundance. You are for producing fruit. Jesus, would we know that in a new and a fresh way this morning? You, who are our Messiah, our Savior, our Redeemer, and our Restorer, we bring all of our ailments before you and ask, Jesus, set your people free. May we know the thawing out of winter and the arrival of spring in our lives. Jesus, we long to see breakthrough. Jesus, we long to see thriving. Jesus, we long to see peace and joy and delight. Your good and abundant life reign over every space of our lives. Thank you for your gentle, constant, gentle invitation to come before you and find healing in you. And so we say that in Jesus' name. Amen.